A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello and welcome. I'm Tim Farron, and this is the show where you get to hear from a Christian politician about how they live out their faith in the mucky business of politics. You might think politics is tainted by compromise and sin. Well, you'd be right. But then again, so is everything else. And so I think Christians should be praying for their brothers and sisters who are in politics in an informed way. Today, we're talking about what it's like to be in the Houses of Parliament, but to not belong to a particular party. Does that give you the freedom to vote however you want? Can you raise any issue that takes your fancy? Joining me will be Lord Don Curry, a Christian and an independent peer in the House of Lords. He's a former businessman and farmer, and he'll be telling us how he got into the House of Lords and how he became a Christian. Before we speak to Don, Cara Bentley has a roundup of some of the news this week. Well, speaking of the role of the House of Lords, Piers defeated the government last week by passing the Genocide Amendment, which aims to give UK courts the power to define genocide in another country so that our parliament can then stop trade deals or impose economic sanctions when there are human rights abuses. And this partly came from the hands of another independent Christian peer, Lord David Alton, who raised the human rights abuses currently going on in China against Uyghur Muslims. This amendment has now gone back to the Commons for MPs to vote on it. Those who oppose it say it puts the UK courts in too much of a political position and they'd be indirectly involved with foreign policy. In other news, talk of variants is dominating the news and how good all the vaccines would be against them. And there's expected to be an expansion of mandatory testing for new arrivals into the UK, so people taking two tests during their self-isolation period. And something that may not have made kind of TV headlines, but is nonetheless interesting, the Prime Minister's special envoy for freedom of religion and belief, Fiona Bruce MP, who has replaced Raymond Chisty, has received a petition calling for the UK to grant asylum to a Pakistani Christian teenage girl called Mara Shabazz, who was forcibly married, then ran away and is now in in hiding in fear of her life, according to religious freedom charities. Tim, I know asylum and the debate about who and how many people should be allowed to settle in the UK is close to your heart. Why do you think it's a Christian issue? We do want to talk about issues in the news, the things that are happening in Parliament or happening in the world of politics, and look at them from a Christian point of view. And I think we're right, at least sometimes, to look at those issues that really ought to be in the news more than they are. And I think this is one of them. So I want to concentrate this week on the issue of refugees and how this country treats them. Over the last five years, we have taken almost 20,000 refugees who fled the conflict in Syria directly from the camps in Lebanon and Jordan. Now, that was the figure that David Cameron agreed to, you might remember, after the public outcry following the emergence of those heartbreaking photographs of little Alan Kurdi lying dead face down on a Turkish beach. On top of those hand-picked refugees, there are around 35,000 additional people each year who make it to Britain and claim asylum. About 20,000 of these people are successful. Now that compares to around 120,000 people who made it to France. So put into context, you can see that we are not being overwhelmed. Now, some will take a different view to me about whether we should provide sanctuary at all, and some might want to set a low limit. But I am certain that we should care how our government, on our behalf, treats those who make it here. Since last September, the government has been housing asylum seekers in former army barracks in Penally in South Wales and at Napier Barracks near Folkestone. 
the government now plans to put into camps all of those who find their way to the UK without being handpicked. That the current camps used are army barracks seems inappropriate to me for asylum seekers, many of whom will have been imprisoned or tortured in military sites in their home countries. In recent days, this situation did elbow its way into the news following a COVID outbreak at the Napier barracks and then a fire that broke out there following increased tensions within the camp. The increased infectiousness of the new COVID strains brings high risk to people housed in crowded sleeping quarters with shared bathrooms and communal areas that just don't allow the residents to physically distance. And more generally, let's remember that being housed in a camp is a really bad idea. A lack of education for children, no opportunity for support from the community, the impact on mental health, the absence of physical health care, the pressure cooker environment that leads to tensions and violence, the fact that even the best camps are just not safe places for women or children. These are desperate people who have made traumatic journeys to escape dreadful circumstances. What are we doing treating them like this? What sort of people provide sanctuary in such a miserable, grudging way? Well, sadly, the answer is us. We are those sort of people because it's been done in our name. These refugees weren't expecting lavish luxury, just peace, normality, and maybe some kindness. In Leviticus 19, we hear, don't mistreat any foreigners who live in your land. Instead, treat them as well as you treat citizens and love them as much as you love yourself. Remember, you were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. There are so many other verses we could cite, but let's just settle on Matthew 7 verse 12 and Luke 6 verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, this week on the show, we're talking about what it's like to be a peer, to be in the House of Lords, and also what it's like to be there as an independent. And to talk about this, we're joined by Lord Don Curry. He joined my Bible study just after Christmas, but unlike me, he sits on the red benches in the House of Lords and isn't assigned to a particular party. Don, you join us from the northeast. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Yes, uh, snowy morning in the northeast. It's always marvellous over there. As, I was, as a student at Newcastle, um, I always remember that it always snowed a little bit harder and stayed a bit a little bit longer up there. And uh, all the better it is. It is for it. Well, Don, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. We obviously, when we talk to our guests, we want to know a couple of things, really. And first and foremost, how it is that you became a Christian and what your faith means to you. So over to you. Uh, well, thank you, Tim. Uh, yes, well, I was had the immense privilege of being brought up in a Christian home from from a child. I mean, rather like um, Paul says about Timothy, from a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures. And I did. I was brought up going to church uh, twice every Sunday and uh, Bible study during the week. So I had the privilege of being brought up in that, that environment. But it wasn't until I was in my teens that I really appreciated that I couldn't shelter under the faith of my parents, even though that was wonderful. I needed to take a decision for myself. So I was challenged about my own personal position before God, and in my teens committed my life to the Lord Jesus. I'd uh, recognized that he died for me, that he'd sacrificed his life on the cross, shed his blood, that I needed to be forgiven, I needed to be redeemed, 
and that his love had been poured out for me as an individual. Mm. So I committed my life to the Lord Jesus. Then that's over 60 years ago. Can you believe it? <laughs> and uh, I can say that uh, although I let him down regularly, he's never let me down. My, he's, he has supported me during that period through the ups and downs of life. And uh, without question, that decision was the most important decision of my life. It's so true. I remember being told by a, a pastor friend of mine uh, once after, shall we say, a difficult period in my life that uh, for the Christian, sin spoils our relationship with God, but it doesn't end it. And I think that sense of uh, him holding you fast throughout many, many Indeed. years is is something yeah. which is experienced by 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 all Christians. And Absolutely. He is, he is the faithful, the faithful one, the same yesterday, today and forever. Absolutely. If our if our salvation was in our hands, we would mess it up. Um, but would. it's not. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. So to go from becoming a Christian as a teenager, uh, you were a businessman, a farmer in Northumberland. And uh, a few years ago, you ended up in the House of Lords. <laughs> so we're really intrigued to hear about how that came about. People know that uh, to get elected to the House of Commons, well, that's what you do. You stand for election and you win or you lose. If you win, you're in the House of Commons until the next general election. Then when we see what happens after that. Yeah. But obviously a very different process or different sets of processes that can lead a person to be on those red benches in the House of Lords. Don, tell me how it happened for you. Well, it is an incredible story. I still um, have to pinch myself every time <laughs> I walk in the door. You know, that a little backwoodsman from Northumberland, a tenant farmer um, who left school at 15, finds himself in the House of Lords. It's just uh, incredible. I had been involved in agricultural policy for a long time, from about 1990 onwards. I was chairing a body called the Meat and Livestock Commission during the 1990s, when through the BSE crisis, and lots of troubled periods for agriculture, and then finally foot and mouth disease. And I was asked by Tony Blair to write a report on the future of food and farming at the end of that foot and mouth disease period. So it was a bit of a catalyst for change. So I wrote a report and then worked with government on the implementation of that report. And a number of people had said to me, you should consider the House of Lords. And I said, what, really? How on earth could I consider the House of Lords? How does that work? And uh, after quite a lot of uh, thought and prayer, I decided to explore it. And there is a route in for people like me uh, through the House of Lords Appointments Commission. You have to fill the form in, apply. And uh, I did. But even while I was filling in the form, I wasn't sure that this was right for me. Was it right as a, as a Christian uh, to be involved in the fall of this fallen world's affairs. It was quite a personal exercise for me, uh, having been brought up to think, you know, that this world is doomed for judgment. Uh, did I really? Was it right? You know, I was, I suppose I was slightly concerned that I was like Lot sitting in the gates of Sodom. So I, um, I went through that prayerful process and applied. And I thought, well, if this is part of God's plan for me, it'll work. And if it isn't, it won't. As I was quite relaxed about this, not knowing whether this really was what God wanted me to do. So I filled the form and applied. I then miraculously got an interview with four peers sitting over the other side of the table. They were very rigorous in their interview process. 
and uh, they recommended that I be appointed. So the recommendation went to the Prime Minister, and 10 years ago I was appointed. That is amazing, and that, obviously there are different routes into the Lords. That is yes. an unusual one. What, what kind of proportion uh, of peers have ended up in the Lords through that route, would you say? Well, the majority of peers are appointed by uh, their party leader, mm. by the Prime Minister or the leader of their party, as you know. Uh, and uh, But, you know, there are a number of hereditary peers yet. There are uh, 26 bishops. Uh, and this route through the, into the crossbenchers as what you call a people's peer or an independent peer, uh, we have about 170 uh, crossbench peers out of 800. So that gives you an indication of the proportion. Mm. But it's important. There's no single political party that dominates in the House of Lords. No party has a majority. So the crossbenchers very often are holding the balance of power. You're listening to Mucky Business with me, Tim Farron. We're talking about what it's like to be in the House of Lords and to sit as an independent with Lord Don Curry. So, Don, you talk about the, the balance of the Lords and the fact that no one party, not even the government, has a majority in the House of Lords. What is it like to be a crossbencher? How does that different, differ, should I say, to the experience you think of members of the House of Lords who take the whip of one party or another? Well, that, that is the biggest single difference. We're not a party. We're 170 individuals. We don't have a whip. So we're not told uh, to vote one way or another. It's an individual exercise. So according to the subject matter, we can vote either with the government or against the government or not vote at all if we don't feel strongly on an issue. So for me, uh, I find that very refreshing. It's, uh, it gives me freedom to decide what I want to do. I can uh, honour my own conscience. Um, I took the view and uh, that uh, everyone in a political party, there must be times that you feel uncomfortable about a particular policy the party's pursuing. There's no problem with that for me. Uh, however, if you have political ambitions to be uh, part of government, then there's no point in being on the crossbenchers because crossbenchers will never ever have ministerial positions because they sit outside of any political party. I guess the experience in the Lords, because people are there and are not dependent upon the electorate or indeed their party whips to, to stay in the Lords, there is a level of independence even for those who belong to a party. But there is. in my experience, um, and I wonder if you'd say it is yours as well, the fact that crossbenchers are not aligned gives them an, an authority um, when they propose amendments to legislation, for example, that might not be seen to be the case for those who do take a party whip. Has that been your experience? Yes, it is. Um, the Lords... Um is much more respectful chamber than the Commons, if I may say so. You may. Uh, the the, <laughs> the uh, different parties in the Lords uh, treat each other with a degree of respect, and uh, you know there is a code of behaviour voluntarily, which is voluntarily applied in the Lords. The Speaker doesn't have the same position. The, uh, the Lord is a self-governing chamber. 
And so there is, as you quite rightly say, a degree of independence there. But uh, the crossbenchers don't have any political axe to grind. We're not trying to score political points. We're not sort of opposed to the government or opposed to the opposition. We're there to hopefully contribute to debate uh, by people who have a certain expertise. Most people on the crossbenchers have had a profession. They uh, come from a professional background, whether it's business or from academia, or you know they've been uh, they've been medics or they've been farmers like me, and they have a specialism to contribute to the debate. And I think that's valued by everyone in the House of Lords. Now we talked earlier on about how one gets into the House of Lords and your process, which is. Uh, one which is fairly rare um, that you go through an, an, a, a vetting process almost an, an interview and an application or application interview uh, and then of course you've got those in much larger numbers who are appointed by their political party and put in there by their party leader by the prime minister then you've got those still I think 92 is it uh, peers who are there by 91 dint, yeah. 91 by dint yeah. of, of, of hereditary uh, indeed uh, in inheritance of their title um so their dad was in there and they get in there um or something like that and then finally um we have the bishops <laughs> um uh, who sit as a kind of and uh, well they're, they're, they're kind of crossbenchers aren't they but they, they don't hold a party whip but you've got bishops in the church of england who take a seat in the Lords. What's your experience of working alongside bishops in the Lords? And we had a question last week on the show about whether it was acceptable that we had bishops, Lords spiritual as they're called, um, yeah. in the House of Lords. Uh, what do you make of that? I mean, first, firstly, I have lots of friends on the benches uh, who are bishops in the House of Lords, and uh, uh, they are lovely to work with. You know, one can anticipate a a Christian perspective uh, being contributed from the bishops and uh, they will very often contribute um, in a very meaningful way on issues of morality and just to remind the house uh, you know that uh, this is uh, part of God's kingdom and we need to pay attention and of course the house starts with 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 prayer every single day and the bishops take it in turn uh, on a rotor system to pray. And I think that's, as part of our tradition, that's hugely important that we continue to start with prayer. So if the bishops weren't there, there would be a question over whether this would continue, this very important tradition uh, practice would continue if the bishop weren't there. Uh, I suspect if we were starting today with a clean sheet of paper, we, we wouldn't appoint 26 bishops because they are in many ways a historical reflection of the link between the church and the state. And if you open that debate, you open up a huge issue in terms of the church's relationship with the state. You know, we're different from France. France is a secular country. We still have this Christian tradition. And in today's world, uh, if uh, reform of the House of Lords was to also include a review of, of the bishops, we'd find ourselves having representatives from all faiths there as yeah. of right. So this is a huge can of worms <laughs> if we would take the lid off and decide to review that. And it really comes back to this issue. Do we still regard ourselves as a Christian country and having a strong link between church and state? 
And that's a really important question. It's one where I think we're going to have to to leave it. Don, you've been our first Lord on the programme and our first Independent on the programme. And in I'm both- sure that's the first time I've ever been the first Lord. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a different role entirely, isn't it? Indeed. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you to have you with us and to have your to have your wisdom and insight into uh, the other half of Parliament and to give us a a little view on what it is like being on the other half of the mucky business that is the Parliament of the United Kingdom. Uh, Don, God bless you and I hope to see you soon. Thank you very much. Well, this is your chance to ask me anything about being a Christian in politics. It could be ethical, political, or dare I say it, even personal. This week, we have a question from a listener over WhatsApp, and that is from Peter in Northern Ireland, and Cara's going to read it out for us. Peter says, why is the political system set up so that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer? And why is the government finding it so hard to understand why people require food banks when the system allows them to receive so little pay? That is a big question. I'll do my very best, Peter. I think I'm first going to say you talk about there being a political system that's set up so the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. I think we are in a sinful humanity. Uh, where greed exists, where selfishness exists, where exploitation of those who are weaker exists. And our job as Christians is in our daily lives to battle against those temptations for ourselves. But it's also, it's one of the reasons I'm involved in politics, to try to set things right where we can. Now, I am somebody whose political views are, I'd like to think, not extreme. I don't think that human beings are capable of making perfect this fallen world. And you've just given a great uh, example of some of the, you know, the deep uh, sinfulness at the heart of the world and the politics that we are involved in. But I do think we can make it better. I do think you can challenge things. I think you can fight, as we have done in recent weeks, for universal credit to be higher, to make sure that uh, people who've not been given financial support through the, the government's bailout schemes over the last um, 10 or 11 months, that they do get support and always looking out for those who have the least. But I am always worried about what we might call trickle-down economics. In other words, that governments will think that if they give wealthy people plenty of money, then the money will just trickle down to the less well-off. And you find that in an area like mine, we've seen the stamp duty uh, change in the last few months, which has been given a real boost to people who can afford to buy a house, even in a, even a second or third home, uh, of which we have plenty in the Lake District. And that feels like it's advantaging those who've got plenty. And there's a little bit of trickle down to the workmen and the tradespeople who then work on newly bought houses but the bulk of the money goes to those who've got the most already and yes as christians i think that should trouble us and we should be fighting for a system which is fairer if you have a question for tim email farron at premier.org.uk well i think it's really important that we pray for one another and we pray for those people involved in our politics leading our country and making decisions that affect all of our lives so let's pray together now well, Father God, we want to thank you for all of those who serve in uh, our Houses of Parliament, in the Lords and the Commons and in council chambers and in devolved assemblies and in every other part of government in our country. We lift them up to you. We know that you have ordained them for the time that they are in office. We want to lift up to you Don Curry, and we thank you for his role in the House of Lords, speaking wisely from a godly perspective on so many different 
issues and on areas upon which he has expertise. Please grant him expertise, uh, bless him and keep his family safe and uh, give him times of, of rest and recuperation in the days ahead. We lift up to you our Prime Minister Boris Johnson, uh, Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, and all those making big decisions about the distribution of vaccine and indeed how we keep our country safe at this time, whilst also making sure we tackle the hardship that exists for many, many people who are suffering uh, because of their income being eroded almost completely by this dreadful situation. We know that you're in control of these times. Help us to trust in you, to know that we have nowhere else to turn, that wonderful desperation, to know that you are our only hope. Thank you that you are such a colossal hope, greater than any vaccine, greater than anything else that we can imagine. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, next week we'll be taking a break as Parliament is in recess, but join us again on Tuesday the 23rd of February for another guest. You can listen back to any of the previous episodes on your podcast app. Don't forget to subscribe as it means you won't miss any and it helps other people to find the show. I'm Tim Farron. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>